Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. My name is Dan Cottrell and with me for the podcast, I'm very pleased to grab some time from Giles Hegarty. Giles coaches school, club and representative rugby, which he's going to tell us a little bit about very soon. So I'm particularly interested to hear his views on how to deal with a range of issues across the spectrum of expectations. And that will become clearer when I ask the questions. So welcome to the podcast, Giles. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure. And I'm looking forward to hearing a wide range, as I said, of views, given all the different experiences you've had and you are coaching at the moment. So it would be very helpful if you could tell us who you're coaching at the moment. Sure. So uh, I'm head of rugby at Cheadle Hume School, which is a school in Cheshire. And I am head coach of Waterloo Ladies in the Tyrrells Prem. And I am head coach of England Counties Under 18s. Okay, so just put that into context there. So Cheadle Hume, what sort of size school, what sort of age groups, uh, what's the expectations from coaching that? So we are um, a co-educational day school with about 1,600 pupils ranging from uh, reception right the way through to year 13. And I started there uh, last year, so this is just coming to the end of my second year. And sport has been on on the up, I think, over the last three or four years. Uh, Manchester, the northwest, is predominantly a football area, but there are some very strong rugby schools. And Shield Hume had some has some fairly high aspirations across all its sports. Its football has become increasingly strong, but rugby has uh, has lagged a little bit behind. So, one of the challenges that that I am faced with is to improve that that program uh, across all levels as far as I'm concerned. So I work with, with the children in year three right the way through to the, the first team, the seniors under, under 18s. Um, it's an exciting opportunity there. Uh, there's some fantastic kids who, who all want to get better. There's some very, very supportive staff as well. Um, we're in the process of, of growing the, the coaching team you like we've just appointed a rugby coach this week to help support the program um, in terms of expectations there I guess most rugby programs when you talk to heads of rugby certainly in in the local area we sort of aim for about 60 to 65 percent win across your your teams um, but to be honest I'm not that concerned about winning and thankfully neither is my director of sport or my my headmistress uh, not at the moment Anyway, we're sort of focused more on on our development pathway and making sure that we've got very strong club links and we're pushing our players towards South Sharks, DPP, and they're having success there and moving on to their, their SDG. All right, so you've used DPP and uh, another acronym. So you're just going to have to remind those who are not so familiar with those terms what that means. So South Sharks, who operate in the English Premiership. Yeah. And uh, DPP stands for? Development Player Pathway. And what age groups are they? Under 13s to under 15, under 16. 
Right. And then the other acronym you use? SDG is Silver Development Group, um, right. which is basically the under-17s, um, part of, forming up part of their junior academy. Right. And uh, obviously not all those players that you're coaching, you're aiming to get there. You're trying to keep them involved in the game. So I am su- I'm thinking that it's a choice to play rugby. They don't have to opt for rugby at the school. That's right. Um, it's sort of a, you can choose, although the first term is, is defined as our rugby term. So everybody does rugby uh, in the first term in games um, to different degrees. So in, in year seven and year eight, they'll do rugby. Which is, which age? That's uh, under 12s and under 13s. So 11, 12, yep. 12, 13. Um, they will do rugby from September to December. Uh, and then in year nine, they'll do rugby from September to the October half term. And then those that are not in the rugby squad, uh, they will go and have a carousel of activities. And we run the same uh, the same system with our under 14s and under 15s as well. And then the same principle with our senior program as well. So if I'm coming in as um, an under 13, or sorry, under 12, under 13, and uh, I've, I've maybe tried out rugby or I'm not so keen on rugby, I'm a nervous child, I'm not that interested in contact. Is there a program for me or how, how do you deal with that? player because i'm sure there are a number of them you are you're absolutely right and um we're very fortunate for a start that we've got a 3g pitch uh so it, we use that we let our um less interested less engaged uh players go on that for a start so they avoid they might get wet because of the, you know it's not covered but uh, they certainly avoid getting muddy i think one of the biggest things that i've always been conscious of as a coach is you've got to make the game accessible. Um, it's something that across all our major sports we, we discuss on a regular basis, the heads of sport, as to how we ensure that our game remains accessible um, so that the less able or the less interested are still able to go out and get something out of it. And we have a fairly clear uh, development programme that is, is, in essence, differentiated. So there are certain skills that we will work on and certain themes that each year group will work on and they get more challenging as the years move up through the school for those that are involved with the squads but those that are non-squad non-team players they'll still do some rugby but we we try and um, there's less focus perhaps on on technical detail and more focus on making it fun and accessible and actually we've seen this year uh, the number of players that have transitioned from those non-team groups into the squad has gone up uh, exponentially so that's and that's quite exciting I mean it's only one year so it it might be an anomaly but the hope is that because we can make the game accessible to people and they can see how how rewarding it can be that they will want to play and they're they're not going to mind when it's December and it's snowing they're still going to want to go out and, and have a bit of a run around with the ball so one of the messages coming out straight away is that you've you make it so it's less less muddy, less uncomfortable for them to pay play. I'm very interested to know what does accessible look like. What are, what are you doing with the players, which makes it on a 
on on a day to day training session by training session basis, which makes them think actually this is not too bad. I'm not going to be become the next uh, superstar rugby player. Actually, I don't mind turning out to run around and play a bit of what is a version of rugby. What makes it? What makes your sessions accessible? I think if you were to go and ask a an under twelve a year seven pupil right now what their perception of rugby was it would be boys getting involved in contact and what we've tried to do is is flip that on its head and uh, and say look we're not we're going to teach you how to tackle because we want you to be safe but the likelihood of us actually doing much contact is going to be limited because we don't want you to take much contact we want you to use your feet we want you to use your skills um we let them kick. We just let them go out and, and have fun. And, and in essence, we just play games with them. And and we've that is not new. It's not unique. Obviously, there's a big push on the cards program at the moment from from the RFU. Cards being uh, creative. I knew you were going to ask me that. Creativity, <laughs> awareness, resilience, decision making, and self organizing. I mean, in essence, it, it's um, teaching games for understanding. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I'm just thinking now, how, how long is a session for these children? Because we're going to have people listening in thinking, uh, this sounds all very good, but what does this session look like? So how long have you got with them? So games lesson, once they're changed, is about 40 to 45 minutes. Right. And I think that's, uh, speaking from experience, I think that's a great time. And often we, we put children through an hour and a half of rugby. And uh, if we were that, if we are our age, an hour and a half of rugby would probably do us in. So that uh, sounds important to me. So it's only 45 minutes. Perhaps they want more. Yeah. So if they, if they, if they do want more, then they're very welcome to come to the team practices. Right. Okay. Have. Yeah. So that's so 45 minutes. And what happens in that 45 minutes? Uh, everybody, everybody has a ball to start with. So we made sure that every single player, if they're out on games, no matter whether they're a squad player or a non-squad player, they'll get a ball to have during practice because ball familiarisation is important. Um, and we'll just we just have as much fun as we can. You know, we'll do loads of different types of games. There might be, you know, your the typical rugby netball where you can run in any direction um, and pass in any direction. We might play some kicking games. We might bring some different shape balls out. Um, you know, just generally trying to make them realize that it's not about a running into bags and b having to smash the uh the, the living bejesus out of each other um <laughs> and make them realize that it's you know, we have a i guess my philosophy about how the game can be played in attack um i want that to be to be implemented and kind of be the bedrock for the school and the way that the school plays rugby and we're not quite there yet just because of time but my hope is that at some point the whole you know we will have a Cheadle Hume school way of playing and people will recognize that when they come up against us or if, if they come and watch a non-team session that it's they're going to see certain things which will be kids with smiles on their faces and they're challenging each other to get better in, in different ways and and they're, they're having some fun. Now Sometimes it's found that players who are in, let's say, the, the B's and the C's, the, the, the non-team players, um, are then pushed to 
go up a level and some of them don't want to go up a level. Some are quite happy to stay down. How do you work that that grey area between if it's A's and B's or it might be B's and C's or it could even be C's and D's? How do you work that, uh, that difficult grey area of moving up a team? So I think you have to give the... You have to do it slowly. Um, I think that involves a, a conversation as well, uh, and almost a little bit, a little bit of ego massage. And most of the time, when, when, in my experience, when someone is not sure that they want to move up, it's because they lack the confidence. And the reason that they are confident in their environment is because they're often with a group that they're with a lot socially, um, and 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 they're they're friendly with. And it's about helping them to realize that they have the potential and you almost drip feed them in and say, right, for the last 10 minutes of today's session, you're going to go with the other group and give it a go or the first 10 minutes. And the next, the following week, it's, you know, a little bit longer and hopefully, you know, working with the, the, the member of staff that's with that, that group. Uh, Working with myself, you often will pair people up. So we'll, we'll sort of say, look, um, you know, Sam's going to come with you today and little Johnny's going to look after you and he's going to be your buddy for, for today and he's going to help yeah. you out. And um, you just, again, it's about the environment and the culture that you have within your groups. You know, yes, you do have your, you're always going to have your A team and, and, and your B team players who are turning out week in, week out for your, for the school. Um, but it's about making people realize that they're very, very welcome. So we run a lot of lunchtime practices that, yes, they are for the team, but anybody can come. Anybody can come and try it. Um, for example, this summer we've run a, a mixed year group touch. Com- it's not a competition. It's basically just anybody that wants to turn up on a lunchtime, boys, girls from year six. So for under 11s right the way through to under 15s, can come out on a Wednesday lunchtime and play some touch. And there's been guys there who haven't played rugby this year that have thought they'll come and give it a go. And they're suddenly saying, sir, when are the, when are the squad practices going to be next year? Um, and the, the best thing about it is actually, I mean, there's, there's five or six staff that come out and play as well. So we've kind of, we've gone down the, the sort of New Zealand, Australia skill acquisition model of you know, different ages playing with each other and, and that sort of thing. And, um, it's just really cool how the skill level's gone up, but also the camaraderie and the interaction across year groups that you wouldn't necessarily get. And I think that's that is the kind of culture that's really important when you. I think that's important. You're breaking down quite a lot of barriers as well. Yeah. And uh, sometimes uh, uh, a player might get a bit of notoriety, which they enjoy from uh, being involved in that. Yeah. So I, I like that. I like the sound of that. And obviously, the uh, it uh, creates a bit of momentum as well. Uh, and creates um, uh, sometimes eighteen practices are very serious, and they forget actually that they should be enjoying the game. Yeah. Uh, now, a question I posed uh, the other week uh, because I was asked this in a uh, coaching the coaches course, and I'm, I'm sure it's something that you've uh, now experienced is that Roslyn Park uh, under thirteens have taken away the the cup. And they're using um, a different different system. Yeah, is is given that especially where Cheadle Hume is placed, uh, that's a long old trip down to Roslyn Park to play four or five friendlies. Putting you on the spot, really, what do you think 
to that? Do you think it should uh, re- should remain as it was as a as a cup competition, or actually it's just a great celebration of playing sevens with lots of other different schools? Um, I think as a competition, it's it's very much that celebration of rugby, but the I think everybody would be the, would admit that kids want to win, and while scores might not be kept officially you get on the bus on the way home and everyone's talking about you know, the tries that they scored and whether they won or whether they lost. And, you know, that, I don't that, think that, where's, where's the harm in that? Exactly. There isn't. And I think that's, yeah. that, that actually is, it's almost encouraging it that little bit more. You know, we have, we have waterfall tournaments up here in, in sevens and, okay. and the can, can you it. just uh, uh, tell me what, or remind those who don't know what a waterfall tournament so is? It's in essence what you've said there. It becomes a festival. Um, so you have your, there might be four groups of four and everyone will play everybody in those groups. And then the teams that have won all their games across the four pools will go and play each other again and, and it's staggered down. So everybody gets the same number of, of fixtures, but at the end of it, there are no winners or no losers. There are no presentations. It's just... It's just a way of getting rugby and making sure that everybody finds their level through playing. And um, yeah. but is it, by dint of that, surely the the group that won all their games, uh, that, that that group, the winner of that, so will go away saying, "Well, we won the the top group." They will know that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you you get a little bit of kudos. Um, but I think actually what we've found certainly this year is that the games in that second, the second level of the waterfall tournament, every single game in each group is so close that it's more about the excitement of the, of the game. And, you know, yeah, there's some disappointment if you, when you lose and there's joy and adulation when you win, but because there's the, People are playing against against um, players of similar ability. The skill levels has to go up, and so the game becomes much more exciting. And I think people are finding that to be incredibly rewarding. So, I and mean, that that is the experience we've had this year. And with uh, with a squad say of twelve, do you rotate? Does everyone get equal playing time? Or uh, I mean, taking taking into account that sometimes players get injured. Does everyone get equal playing time, or is it the better players will probably play a bit more than the the less able? Um, I, look, I can only speak for for what we do, and that's you know, we go out and we we make sure that everybody gets equal game time. I think next year, um, in two years' time, they're bringing in the half game rule, yep. and most certainly we will be adopting the half game rule from next year for our for all our age groups. I think that's important. I, th- I completely understand why they're doing it. I think it goes back to my earlier point about accessibility. You don't want to be the, the kid on the sideline. You know, you're not too sure about rugby, and you go all the way to somewhere cold and wet, and you get five minutes at the end. That's not what the game's about. That's not how you encourage people to stay involved. How about those who argue that? Uh, how are we going to create a better England team if we don't push the better players? Um, I think that the way 
the academy system is set up now, uh, uh, the way that it's supported by school rugby and county rugby allows for those players still to, to rise up. And I think I, I would also say that, and I know I mentioned this before, kids want to win. And I think if you were to look at, at those players who are playing for England at under-18s, under-20s and in the seniors right now, every single one of them has got that innate desire to do whatever it takes to win. And not everybody's got that. That, you know, that is fact. And I do think it, 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 can be, it can be grown, it can be nurtured, but those people that really truly want to win, they will, they will still come through whether they're playing 35 minutes or 70 minutes. And the other thing to consider is you're, you're not going to take a bench of 15. It's unlikely you're going to have a bench of 15. So mm. um, it's not like everybody every week is only going to be playing 35 minutes. Yeah. It's going to be, you're going to have enough of a game to make it worthwhile. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I'm going to move you. Sorry, go on. No, 100%. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm going to move you away from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. Uh, which is your role with England counties. Now, that's a different sort of role altogether, so it must have different sorts of challenges. So um, though it must be quite exciting to be with some very talented players and players who are keen to push themselves on, and there are some good examples of players who've pushed on from counties and done extremely well beyond. I'm very interested in the the challenges that you face and how you overcome them, because there are plenty of challenges. What In terms of acting as a coach, having to get them onto a training field, what are the main challenges you're facing? Time is probably the biggest factor. And to give you some idea, this year we had two training camps, which were a Friday, Saturday and a Sunday. And then we went into the test week, which was Monday, Tuesday, play Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, play Saturday, done. Um, now, we were very fortunate this year because of the way that the dates fell that the second training camp was actually the weekend before the test week. So we were, we ended up being in camp for, for 11 days, which was, um, which was fantastic. But we've not, we've not had that historically. Um, and so next year, for example, our first training camp is six weeks before the second training camp, and that's a long gap, um, particularly when you think you've got Rosslyn Park and, and other such tournaments in between. So time is time is the biggest challenge that we have, I think. And given it is you don't have much time, what what needs to be done in order to get a a team onto the park, onto the tra- onto the field in a competitive way? Because of course, obviously, the other. The other teams you're up against will be facing similar sorts of difficulties. Some may have a bit more time, some a little less. What What's most important? What What do you need to do straight away? Well, we what we try and do is is create a team first. So we try and bring we're effectively bringing together four divisions, players from four divisions. Who, whilst there will be some existing relationships, you've got to break down the relationships they've got within their divisions and help them to become one. Um, and Sorry, Jazz. just before you go, can you just uh, say what qualifies you to play for England counties and what prevents you from playing? Sure. So uh, at the beginning of each season, um, 
the academies release a list on which there are players who are selected to their under-18s academy squad. And um, there are also players who are not going to or unlikely to be selected for for the academy squads that may have been involved within the DPP and or, or the SDG. And those players that are not going to be involved in the under-18s academy league are released back to their counties. And the counties programme runs from about October until uh, early December, when uh, the players will then be invited to a divisional trial. So we have four divisions, which will be the North, the Southeast, the Southwest and the Midlands. Off the back of those trials, uh, squads are taken into two preparation days for their divisions. And those then four, four divisions then come to a national development weekend, which is a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where they all play each other and they do some team building exercises on the Saturday. And uh, off the back of that, we select our squad and then we go into camp. Okay, so now now we're uh, you've got your your squad, you've got to build a team. Yeah. Uh, so we're we're going. Uh, I'm just thinking. There's there's lots of things around building teams which would be very interesting to discuss. But for now, I want to think they're actually crossing the whitewash onto the training park. Yeah. What's what's happening first for them? So, um, we actually did things a little bit different this year and it's probably easier to to explain what we did um, because it has changed so much in in the seven years that I've been doing it so we we provided uh, a very short list of language to the players before they arrived in camp so once they'd been selected they were sent an email with uh, my Philosophy, my attacking philosophy and my assistant coach Matt Hutchins' defensive philosophy, and they were given uh, uh, some terminology. Just because because time is so short, you have to create that common language early. Otherwise, you've got you know, lineout calls from all over the place, or you've got you, know, you Dan might call. A ball from your nine hot I might call it green and everything gets very confusing so we'd set that up before they'd arrived so we once we'd got together the first thing we did when we we got on the field is we said right show us what a red looks like which is a it's an ignition shape uh, played off nine and immediately people started organizing each other and we basically continued the first session in, in that vein and this year was unique because we came into camp on the Friday morning, but we were playing on Saturday afternoon, the day after. So we actually only had um, about four hours preparation time before we went into that game. So we were really looking at, at framework. and We let the players come up with with some of how we were going to play. But at the same time, because we had to, there was an element of, look, this is what we as coaches think we should do based on the strengths that we've seen as we've selected you into the squad. And the other thing to consider is that historically we used to run two hour and a half sessions a day. And as time has gone on, 
I realized when I took over as head coach that it, it didn't really work because you've got a massive drop off in concentration and effectiveness, particularly about halfway through the, the second session, basically mm. because the boys are just not used to operating at that level of intensity and they were exhausted. So we've moved to three 45 minute sessions a day. And in between each session, the players will get a refuel. So they'll get some, uh, they get some, some food and rehydration and that sort of thing. And they get to review the session as well on, on the video and we'll do some one-to-ones or some unit work. And as a result of that, we're able to become much more effective within those sessions. Um, and that allows us to kind of get things going a lot quicker. Okay, just uh, can I just develop that point now? I'm thinking, first of all, it's fascinating what you're doing straight away and how much you've got to coach. It's got to be coach-led, inevitably. And I don't think anyone would argue with that or they would find it difficult to suggest otherwise anyway. I'm now trying to say, let's put this into a, a school context. I got my first 15 three times a week, perhaps, and I'm training training train them for the, an hour and a half. Is there a case for saying, right, we're going to train for 40 minutes, and actually we're going to take a 10-minute break? And in that 10-minute break, we might sit around, we might refuel, we might discuss stuff, but we're not actually going to be moving around, and that is 10 minutes off your feet. Then let's get back into it. Is there a case for that or am I sort of taking it a bit too far? Because I know obviously with your sessions, you've got a lot longer in between. Um, actually, I, I think there probably is a massive case for it. One of the biggest things I've, I've learned this year particularly is it's not necessarily about how much time you have. It's about how effective you are within that time and within the space that you have. Um, and to give you an example, I, I was very fortunate to go and spend a couple of days with Leinster in early January. And they had their, their gym session set up so that guys would be lifting weights, but guys, the, the guys that were resting were doing skills. They might be tackle skills. They might be handling skills. Um, they might be doing some video analysis. And this is happening all in, in the same room. And, and it was a, almost light bulb moment where thinking these guys are the best in the business and look how they are maximizing their time and their space to be able to be ultra efficient because you know that they are even though they're professionals they're still short on time Hmm. Um, i think that's something which uh, i i found speaking to professional coaches in particular i was always amazed so i just don't have enough time with the players and you think we've got all week well it (laughs) It's amazing where all week disappears to, especially yeah. when you've got a big squad and all the different things that you have to uh, to deal with. So now I'm going right back to we've got a 45-minute session now. Yeah. And they're going out onto the field, and you're suggesting the very first thing they're doing, or pretty much the first thing they're doing, I'm assuming there's some form of uh, body activation before they get going, yeah. is that they're moving into some shapes. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so we were challenging them to to see what knowledge they brought in, to see who was going to step up as a leader and an organiser, and immediately putting them under pressure. And, and that is the biggest thing that is hard to replicate, is the intensity of a test match. So we were tr- deliberately trying to put them under some pressure so they had to function at a higher cognitive and physical level. Um, and some people sink, 
and some people swim and the whole idea is that we have to try and get everybody up to the level that they're swimming so your role as a coach changes during the course of a session um, because you're having to support different people again you're trying to help the leaders to support those that are perhaps struggling a little bit because they haven't done as much prep or um, you know they're just they've just never been involved in that sort of environment before and it's um you very quickly you see a team come together because they have to and ultimately they are playing for their country and very few people get the opportunity to do that and it really matters to them and what words are you are you using what input are you bringing in as you are standing there or moving around amongst them um it varies really i I tend to have a lot of individual conversations, so I might just ask someone to look at something in a slightly different way or ask the question, you know, what would happen if you moved yourself slightly to the right? We might bring people in in smaller groups and just talk about some of the detail around a shape. We try and keep um, huddles to a, to a minimum. One of the things that I've learned going around a couple of premiership clubs is the importance of, of miking up the coaching staff so everybody's might got got a walkie-talkie on so that um let's say that you're running part of the session and i can step out and i can talk to people but i might see something in terms of a bit of detail you i can then put that into you and you can communicate it to the players or, or vice versa um we we do a lot of scenario based stuff as, as the camp develops um and we tend to sort of we give we try and create scoreboard pressure on the boys and, and see how they react to that as well. So we'll input that and then we'll leave them to it. So now I'm thinking key pieces of equipment and um, how much would you say, because this is something I think I would need to go out and find. I've had a look into it before. How much does it cost to mic up, say, three coaches? Because it sounds to me like this would be a big takeaway for lots of coaches if they could be mic'd up. So let us say even with um, someone who's taking the under-12s or under-13s and there's three or four coaches, they could be better off just by being able to communicate quickly with each other. So they're not having to do big team talks or stop the whole thing. They can just jump in and jump out. Oh, I think you can you can pick up a pair of walkie, a decent pair of walkie-talkies off Amazon for £45, £50. Um, it's it's one of the best things I've I've brought into my coaching, without a doubt. And I, and the guys that I work with w- would would say the same. Just because, as you say, you've got instant communication, and you can choose. You no know, part of your job is to filter that. Whether it is it relevant for me as I'm running this part of the session to bring that in. Um, it's also useful if if there are three of you or one of you is refereeing, and the coach who's observing wants to change the condition of the game. Because the game, the flow of the game doesn't really alter. It's just the referee will might change something, or might give a penalty when there isn't a penalty to try and build some pressure and get a reaction out of, out of the players. That sort of thing. The words flow and momentum are key. I think a lot to really good sessions. Mm. So I sense that Mike, these uh, being mic'd up and being able to communicate between the coaches just helps create flow you're not stopping it and it allows momentum because a coach from one angle might say right just change this a little just see if we can change this up a little and then it just keeps the players 
moving forward a little bit faster. Um, that that seems to be an important takeaway for me at this stage. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And now thinking about the players themselves, uh, as you said yourself, some of them swim. They they're in there straight away. They've 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 got a handle on it. They maybe have the confidence, they're better skilled, or maybe just so happens that week they are they've had a good week of sleep and good week of work and they're in a good mood. And other players might arrive uh, in a different frame of mind for a whole number of reasons. They might be carrying an injury. One of the things which often worries me is that a coach can come in with some great questions, uh, some empathetic points of view, but the player themselves. They just don't have the the brain, the brain power to cope with it. Now it might be that they're not just they're just genuinely not particularly clever, perhaps, or they're just not rugby clever. Is there is this something you're conscious of? I'm sure you are. Or it, how how do you deal with those players? I think it, it comes down to working with them on an individual basis. Now that can be direct, as in come on, let's go and do a one-to-one and, and do some catch-pass or some breakdown or whatever it might be. Or it's a conversation, informal conversation. Um, it's also helping someone to understand what their specific job is. Um, and I think that helps and has helped massively with, with some of the players that, that have fallen into the bracket you've just mentioned, where sometimes trying to get people to understand every element of the game is too much for them. And what becomes really important is to help them to understand that this is what we would like you to concentrate on. Help them to say, well, what is it that you want to concentrate on? Do you want to carry the ball? Do you want to just run around banging rucks or or, or whatever it might be? And I think then things become a a, a lot easier uh, because they realise that there's a filter uh, and they can make some much better decisions based around what, what their their role is within the team. Now, some of these players will have difficulty verbalising mm. those those ideas. And we, we all know that we've been in situations ourselves where someone's asked us a question in an area we don't know and we just do not know how to express ourselves. How do you get around that with these these players, especially the players who are f- find it difficult even to get to the, uh, they have maybe uh, maybe some learning difficulties, but they just generally just cannot express themselves in a way. And obviously, in a one-to-one situation with the head coach or the lead coach, that's quite nerve-wracking as well. I think there's two parts to that. The first thing is we provide all the players with is what we've nicknamed our Bible. Um, and within that, it's got some information about you know, all the, the fixtures, all the details of where we're going to be in camp, all that sort of stuff. But the most important part of it is the self-reflection section at the back. And every day is dated. Each day is then split up for each session. So they're able to reflect. And when we do have our, our one-to-ones, whether they're formal or informal, we'll, we'll just say, you know, look, bring your, bring your Bible and we'll have a look and maybe we'll help you make some notes maybe you can show us the notes that you've made and that that has made a, a big difference um i think the the point you make about you know getting the call to the headmaster's study if you like again it's about the environment that you you create uh whilst whilst i might be the head coach 
we have a very very flat management structure and you know we really work hard to try and and make everybody as accessible as they possibly can be so that it's not a case of dan over you come we need to sit down and we need to have a chat it's much more of a come on let's have a brew or a bit of banter and you know i get i get absolutely terrified by the lads quite a lot uh, and by the rest of the management team um and i think that just you know it's just quite quite relaxed and whilst it's really intense on field it needs to be relaxed off field because it is you know, test match football is tough um at, at any level and trying to help these guys to not get too wound up is is a really important part of the job Giles, I'm. We. I've got about another hundred and seventy thousand questions to ask on lots of other things. So I'm going to uh, promise um, version two of this because I've got another set of questions to ask. So I'm going to stop you there because I think we've covered some top areas, and um, there are some things where I'd like to develop and ask further in part two, which will be coming very soon. So. Uh, Thank you very much for those those insights, particularly some of the things taken away from me is how I'm trying to make the game more accessible for the less, well, not the players who weren't so keen, but probably weren't, didn't understand, trying to break down some barriers within school by making it more accessible in, in different versions of the game. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a games lesson that they access, access rugby. They can get it through a different level. And then, some of the ideas about building a team, getting getting the calls to the players beforehand, that idea again of the flat structure. Um, in, in particular, from you know from both those uh, areas we talked about, what would you say? Right, if I had to say to somebody, this would be the most important things. What what would be the the number one in each for each group? Uh, I think from a coaching point of view you have to try and be as authentic as you can so practice what you preach because any player at any level even an under seven will see through you if you do not believe in what you're doing would be the probably the number one i would say right um and i would i would say the other thing is you do not have to know it all there's a vast amount of knowledge in the players that you're working with. And sometimes you have to give them the opportunity to, to put it out there and let them challenge you, I think. Right. Okay. Well, that's almost uh, two further questions <laughs> for next time. Well, how, what does an authentic coach look and sound like? And how do you allow those players to give their version of the story and still develop the team and the way forward. Anyway, Giles, it's been brilliant. Really enjoyed chatting to you and uh, putting you on the spot on a couple of things. And uh, despite my best efforts, you've coped very well under pressure. Uh, I've tried to be authentic um, and be open with my flat management style. I'm not sure if I've always succeeded, but it's been a great pleasure. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And thanks again, Giles, for your time. And we will catch up with you all again very soon. 
Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to RugbyCoachWeekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.